This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a bumper edition of the US-China trade war update. I am Finbar Birmingham on the political economy desk at the South China Morning Post. It has been chucking it down cats and dogs here all week in Hong Kong, and the deluge of news stories shows no sign of letting up either. We trade journalists thought we'd been busy over the past few months. Then the World Trade Organization said on Wednesday, hold my beer. The dispute settlement body at the WTO ruled in favour of China in a case filed against the first two lists of Donald Trump's trade war tariffs dating back to July 2018. This was a huge global story around the world. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with Tatiana Prazeres, a former WTO official now working up in Beijing, to get more detail on what this ruling means, what it might mean for the future and what the view is from where she is in China. Last week, we told you about the pushback the United States was facing domestically in its plans to roll out a ban on goods made using forced labour in Xinjiang. Earlier this week, these withhold release orders finally came to pass. But as we speculated last week on the show, they were in watered-down format, targeting five Xinjiang entities rather than the feared ban on cotton from Xinjiang, which would have seriously upended the industry. The supply chain breathed a sigh of relief for now because there's likely to be more ahead on that front. We also saw the underwhelming conclusion of a top-level EU-China summit attended by Xi Jinping, Angela Merkel and others, with both sides still vowing to work towards an investment treaty but nothing concrete as yet. You'll hear from political economy editors John Carter and Joe Shin on these issues on this week's show, as well as a couple of other nuggets from inside China's economy as ever. And in an added bonus this week, with all of the talk about decoupling, supply chain shifts and reducing reliance on China in the run-up to this year's election, I was really happy to talk with a businessman whose company has, for the past few years, been almost the embodiment of this debate under the Donald Trump presidency. H. David Murray is the president and CEO of manufacturer M Corp. In 2017, he had nearly 100% of his manufacturing in China. Now it's closer to 50%. He's going to join us on this week's show. Find out more about his journey on this week's US-China trade war update. In what's been a huge week for US-China relations and for global trade, delighted to be joined once again with Joshin John Carter, our political economy editors here at the South China Morning Post. We're going to have a guest on in part two of the show to talk about all the stuff coming out of the WTO this week, guys. But that wasn't the only big trade story in town. Last week, we had discussed the possibility for a ban on products out of Xinjiang. The withhold release orders eventually came over a week after they were expected and they were watered down. Um, So what we got was partial import ban on products made by five companies related to the Xinjiang region of Western China. It wasn't um, as sweeping as we expected, John Carter, but the language by the CBP, the Customs Border Protection Agency in the United States, left it open for this to be expanded, and we do expect more movement in the future. Regardless of the nature of these bans, it does seem like 
in the case of Xinjiang and the United States, the direction of travel is very clear. No, indeed. Uh, this is a, another gradual step in, in clamping down on what the United States alleges as human rights abuses in Xinjiang. And uh, as the, you said, the head of the Customs and Border Protection Agency in the U.S. said that there's likely to be more to come. Um, on the one hand, the United States uh, wants to be it wants to put a marker down that what's going on in Xinjiang uh, is is not right, and so there will be punishment. On the other hand, that they don't want to destroy the entire relationship, so they're taking what might be perceived as gradualist steps. Um, in addition, um, as you pointed out in your writing, Finbar, a, a widespread ban would have uh, dramatic implications for the global supply chain and clothing uh, because of the widespread use of Xinjiang cotton all over uh, Asia. Um, and so I think the U.S., uh, one of the reasons it didn't go more strongly than it did is that they wanted to limit the economic impact. Yeah, it was really interesting talking to people over the the about seven or eight days between when the ban was expected and when it actually landed um the, the the term that kept coming up in my conversations was this is a black box i think business people in particular who are used to having great sort of relationship with the white house and with the u.s government th this to me illustrated how, how that has changed over the years um these people were were in, as in the dark as as i was um they were waiting to see what was going to happen from within the government so that was a little interesting tidbit i talked I took from from that sort of um, that lag in uh, in time, um, and, and on a connected issue that we also discussed last week, the European Union and China had their high level talks on Monday. Um, Monday gone by, uh, President Xi Jinping uh, spoke with Angela Merkel, spoke with Ursula von der Leyen, all the top EU brass, and nothing really came of it. Um, there were some positive statements and. There were some uh, commitments to continue working towards an investment treaty, but nothing concrete as yet. And again, John, this shows um, the, the EU were drilling down on human rights issues. So um, as Joe Shin mentioned last week, this is China's worst nightmare, but it continues to, to, to unravel. The, the European Union and the US are now hell-bent on holding China's feet to the fire on human rights. And human rights, as we discussed last week, is becoming a bigger issue in a broader relationship. Uh, it's it's in, in the trade, in the tech, um, and in, in this cotton ban, um, or partial cotton ban. Um, in the meeting, or what we hear is in the meeting between Xi and the EU leaders, is that they brought up um, issue by issue human rights questions. Um, and this whole, the whole purpose of this call was to try to bring China and the EU closer. China is looking to the European Union for a closer relationship, given the deterioration in the relationship with the US. And the EU said, yes, we'd like that, but only if we address these issues. Um, the uh, the hope for an EU investment treaty, there was uh, lots of nice rhetoric about it, but the negotiations have been going on for seven years. And it's not clear if uh, the EU's basic demands for a level playing field in the Chinese market are being met. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's uh, while they would like a, 
a new EU investment treaty by the end of the year, I would have to say that the odds are still against it. Yeah, and from Stuart Lowe's writing, our own Stuart Lowe's, uh, we, we know that um, Angela Merkel, who's going to be out of office next year, she's the main sponsor of EU-China relations and, and of this investment treaty. So the clock's ticking on that front too. Joe Shin, was there any... Um, any major response from from inside China on the um, on the EU talks earlier in this week? Okay, I think but things are very interesting in uh, China because for increasingly for uh, Chinese uh, talks with uh, Europe or US, uh, you know, for the Chinese audience, they just receive whatever you know she had said, whatever Merkel or the other says is very. Um, is very limited, but it's making very clear that uh, she has told the European U- leaders that you, they do not want any teachers or coaches on human rights. And this is almost like saying, no, like we are willing to do business with Europe, but, you know, stopping or meddling our own affairs and stopping, you know, trying to lecturing me on, uh, on human rights. And this was uh, this was a headline on many social uh, media, on enemy, uh, official media reports. You know, China do not accept uh, European Union as a teacher or coach on human rights. Uh, on the other hand, China is also playing up the message of like, uh, by the end of this year, China and Europe should assign this bilateral investment treaty. However, f- uh, people can see that this 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 could be uh, you know there could be lots of uncertainties because China has been saying about the uh, another trade pact, you know, the ASEP for years. But every year, like we're going to sign this by the end of the, <laughs> this year, and then the next year they say the exactly the same thing. It's been going on for almost like a decade now. So for the for the for the European. Um, bilateral investment treaty uh, people are waiting to see uh, what will really happen for for analysts i mean if they look at these uh, uh, you know what kind of agreement they have uh, they have reached uh, I, I think many people do not have full confidence in the timeline because um, from chinese media they, the only thing they agreed upon is uh, this uh, um, geographic definition and you can see both sides are fanatically uh, searching for something that both sides can agree upon. And this is not in a breakthrough. Seriously, this is not about like state-owned enterprises. This is not about uh, the, the government. This is not about reform of China's uh, uh, market. So this is a quite marginal issue, but they highlight it as one like important consensus. So this can, this itself shows that uh, China and Europe can't agree upon more important issues. Yeah, uh, and Joshin, just to move on from the Europe issue briefly, we had a um, when when after he finished speaking with the European Union, um, Xi Jinping gave an interesting domestic-oriented speech uh, in which he, um, as our headline said, he called for loyalty from the private sector. This picked up a good bit of traction on social media. Um, obviously, this is a, a sort of a one of those buttons that people love to to to, to push um, um, about the state-led economy in China. Uh, what was your takeaway? From from Xi's speech on this area, what, what what can we learn from this? Okay, first of all, this is a big like first ever. The Chinese Communist Party the Central Committee issued a united front work policy for specifically for the private entrepreneurs. And then Xi Jinping has uh, sent a message to a nationwide uh, conference, work conference, United Front Work Conference, specifically for the private business people. So this is quite important and. Uh, in contrast to uh, the perception that, oh, the Communist Party is trying to boost its influence in the private sector, it's trying to control more of the private economy, I think that's uh, uh, the, the significance is actually the opposite. You know, she doesn't need to push for that influence anymore. Even by official numbers, they are 
out at nine out of ten Chinese private businesses have already set set up their commerce to party sales. Yeah, <laughs> and those who don't set up possibly don't have more than three communist party member or whatever. But this Xi Jinping is doing this is to to kind of uh, an assurance or a promise to the Chinese the private business people saying, you know, you will be uh, valued and your contribution to the national economy will, will be recognized. You are part of this, uh, you know, this whole uh, nation building efforts and we will treat you uh, nicely. So this is this is uh, like ideological uh, efforts by the Communist Party to unite as a private economy sector, as uh, as as Beijing is ready for for a more hostile environment. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I, I, as I said in the um, yesterday's story, you know the, the the jury is still out whether Chinese private business people can trust the Communist Party. But whatever, whether, whether they trust it or not, you know the, what do they do? What we can see is they are trying very hard to be close to the party as much as possible. We can see Jack Ma is a Communist Party member. I mean, uh, Pony Ma is uh, is a member of MPC. Richard Liu, because of his sex scandal, was uh, kicked out of the um, top political consultative committee, and everyone in China knows this is a loss. So, putting the global contest, it will be getting uh, increasingly difficult for Chinese private businesses to separate them from the uh, Communist Party because this will be difficult for also for our side. Whether this is a genuine business decision or you have received some instructions. Uh, from the Communist Party, you know, being behind doors we, that we don't know. Mm. So this is quite, this is quite uh, uh, interesting. And it also, it also up to how Chinese private businesses manage this kind of relationship. I mean, one typical example is uh, ByteDance, the TikTok. You know, in the United States, I have to persuade Washington that we're completely independent, independent from the Chinese government, right? We're a private business. We want to be global business and we want to make money. And that's it. And they, but in China they have to like we are patriotic we are loyal to the to the to the to the party we are part of this efforts to building up uh, realizing the re great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation so this is this will be a, a kind of um, dilemma for many Chinese business uh, to 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 handle. Yeah, that was interesting. Like the timing of this, um, the fact that the it is in tandem with the ByteDance TikTok situation. Do you think that there's any overlap there in terms of why did the, the CCP decide to do this right now? I, I don't think that's so specific, but the message is clear. I think uh, the Communist Party is saying to the uh, capitalists of the country, like even even we are Communist Party, you know, we follow the Karl Marx doctrine that is the, at the end of the day, private ownership will be ended. But for now, for a long, long period of time, maybe 100 to a year's time, we treat you as our own people and we will have to your back, you know, when you see troubles ab abroad. I'm sure they're all very reassured by the <laughs> by, <laughs> by the messaging there. Um, John, I just wanted to uh, briefly bring you in before we wrap up. The uh, economic data earlier in the week was was positive. Uh, growth continues in China. Retail back to growth. What was your takeaway from that? Well, again, it it shows that the uh, economic rec recovery in China is is gaining momentum. Um, as you noted, retail sales, which is a proxy for overall consumer spending, rose for the first time this year in August. And that's important because of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, new dual circulation strategy, which focuses on the domestic economy. So with consumers resuming their spending uh, growth, then that's important for the overall uh, trajectory of the economy. Um, industrial production uh, accelerated. 
uh, fixed asset investment was uh, still negative for the year as a whole so far, but less than it was, and it looks like next month it'll turn positive. Um, the OECD had its new forecast. That's the organization. Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, their new forecast for the global economy. And they said that China would be the only G20 country to post growth this year. Um, so China is leading the world uh, in growth, although the OECD warned that because of the nature of that growth and the world nature of the uh, effects from the COVID-19 outbreak, that China would not be a growth engine the way it was back uh, a decade ago after yeah. the uh, global financial crisis. This is an interesting point that's been made a few times recently, is that while China's economy has recovered, it's actually a drag on global growth. Is that is that the, the sort of messaging in that OEC, OECD report, John? Not a drag, but they, they were saying it's not a locomotive either. It's more neutral. And, and that's not good for the outlook for global growth. Um, everyone expects an improvement next year, uh, but still, uh, it's going to take a number of years to get back to where we were in late 2019. Mm. And of course, uh, the, the, the usual debate um, followed the, the both the official Chinese economic data that came out on Monday and then the OECD report on, on social media where people uh, saying, you know, you have to take these figures with a, with a pinch of salt. My message is always, yes, of course, the, the concrete number is the actual number we take with a pinch of salt. But conversations with business people, factory owners in China do illustrate that the trend is clear. I mean, even if you don't believe the actual number, the, the, the direction is, is very certain. At least so far, there is one question and whether the strong increase in demand recently is just catch up from uh, the first part of the year when uh, COVID uh, ravaged industry, ravaged consumers. Um, and uh, whether that sharp increase in demand we've seen, particularly in car sales, whether that will continue. And if it doesn't continue, what it means for the outlook for the economy. Now, that is, I would say, is a minority view at this point. I think all of the indicators for China are pointing up at the moment. Fantastic. John Carter, Joe Shin, thank you very much for joining us today. You're quite welcome. See you next week. Delighted to be joined this week by Tatiana Prazeres, who is a senior fellow in Beijing at the University of International Business and Economics. Tatiana was previously a senior advisor to the Director General at the World Trade Organization in Geneva, and she also served as a Secretary of Foreign Trade at the Brazilian Ministry of Industry, Foreign Trade and Services. So she comes with great pedigree, and we're delighted that she's joined us to talk about what has been a, a big week in WTO news, particularly in this part of the world. Tatiana, were you surprised this week by the fact that the WTO ruled in China's favour in a dispute case over Donald Trump's trade war tariffs? Oh, hi, Simba. It's a pleasure to, to be with you today. If I'm surprised, um, not really. Um, I tell you why. Um, the violations um, um, that resulted from the tariffs introduced by the Trump administration were really uh, kind of a textbook examples of what you cannot do in terms of WTO disciplines. First, um, US tariffs discriminate against one country. Uh, and of course, you cannot do that. That's rule number one of the goods agreement of the WTO. You should treat members equally. 
And then uh, they are also violated rule number two, article number two of uh, the, the agreement on goods, which is you cannot go beyond your tariff uh, level commitment, the commitment that you undertook when uh, when the WTO was created. So the U.S. also went beyond uh, that tariff level in introducing uh, these tariffs against, against China. So it was not surprising. The question was, um, I mean, it was hard for the U.S. to argue that these tariffs were consistent with the WTO disciplines. The question was whether they would find an excuse, an exception and, uh, for them to justify their measures. And then that was the interesting part. So the U.S. argued that um, their measures were justified by the exception of public morals. And I mean, that is a bit interesting, I found. Yeah, it was a bit of a left field angle from which to defend this, right? Because um, they didn't actually dispute that it was um, against the letter of the law and WTO rules, but more that they had moral justification. Is that basically what happened, Tatiana? Yeah, well, the agreement allow uh, the, the agreement provides for that exception, right? So, public morals is not uh, just a moral kind of a justification that is established in the WTO and the, the, the goods agreement. I don't I don't want to be very technical here, mm-hmm. but there's a legal basis for you to argue that you deviated from the rules based on public morals. So, they, there was a legal argument to be made. And I mean, U.S. lawyers are very good. I mean, I I, I think that was the best <laughs> that they could think of. And I don't blame them for arguing that because really there was nothing else, I think, in the agreements that they could resort to to justify the measures. But of course, the panel just didn't buy the, the argument. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was the, the, the that led to China's victory. Yeah, um, the victory you mentioned is is something of a hollow one, perhaps some would say, because in reality, there's there's not really much China can do with this, and maybe they can use it as a as a moral victory, um, and they can say, okay, we're, we're, the WTO says that we're in the right here. But is that fair to say, Tatiana, that it's a bit of a hollow victory? Yeah, well, I think you're right. I think um, that's what it is. Um, I'm just taking a step back. The, the WTO dispute settlement system is a two-tier system. So there's this panel stage, and that's where this dispute was just decided. Mm. And then uh, if a member is is unhappy with the ruling, it can appeal to the appellate body. And then uh, there, of course, there would be a final decision on, on the issue. So the U.S. has been consistently blocking the appointments of new appellate body members, of new judges, if you want. Yeah. And because of that, you don't have today enough sitting judges or AB members, appellate body members, to hear an appeal. So the U.S., by just exercising its right to appeal, it will uh, uh, appeal into, into the void, as we mm. call it. So there would not be a final solution to the case just because there is no way an appellate, there's no appellate body to, to hear the, the, the appeal. And therefore, there would no be there would not be a final solution to this case. I mean, I'm assuming the Americans will appeal so that the the the, the case would be pending, right? Mm. And then, uh, yeah, so China could not claim that uh, they can uh, that they they have a final ruling on this issue, and therefore they cannot exercise their legal rights, for example, to suspend concessions mm-hmm. or retaliate, as we call it informally. So all in all, you're right. It's a moral victory. I think they have the the uh, the, the, the moral argument here, uh, but uh, objectively speaking, there's not much they can do just because of what the Americans themselves did to the appellate body of the WTO. Yeah, and 
is there some irony in the fact, I mean, if, if we do um, predict that the United States is going to appeal this, is there some irony that the United States, which has essentially hijacked the appellate body by refusing to approve the appointment of appellate judges, is there some irony in the US then taking this case to, case to an appeals court that doesn't exist because it has been held hostage by the by the United States. I think I couldn't have um, said it better, really. Uh, there's a lot of irony going on in these days in terms of trade policy, in terms of WTO, and uh, this is uh, one of them. I think it's it, it represents uh, the, the, the contradictions and the... the uh, and all the drama, really, that the WTO uh, is is going on. So the U.S. somehow hijacks the the, the judges or the appellate body, and then appeals to the to an appellate body that doesn't exist, just to make sure that there won't there is not a final uh, ruling against them. Mm. And uh, yeah, voila, that's where we are. <laughs> Certainly, <laughs> but it won't mean this is if you look at the Trump administration's behavior over the past four years. You, this is not really something that's likely to um, deter. Um, Trump Lighthizer et al. from the the sort of trade policy they've been embarking on in 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 the past few years. No, no, not at all, not at all. I don't think that will change um, U.S. behavior in any way. Or, I mean, if you want, there's a risk that this furthers um, that this further emboldens. I think the hawks in the U.S. administration. Those that have been arguing that China benefits from the WTO, that unduly benefits from the WTO, that the WTO treats the U.S. unfairly, uh, blah, blah. So um, I'm not uh, just uh, minimizing the concerns that the Mm -hmm. U.S. has with regards to the WTO. I'm just saying that's a, a narrative that is gaining force in the U.S. and this ruling could somehow strengthen the arguments uh, of those who believe that the WTO has been treating um, the U.S. unfairly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, uh, the U.S. has been, uh, U.S. representatives have, have been hinting at the possibility of the U.S. withdrawing from the WTO, leaving the WTO. I don't think this particular ruling would make the difference but somehow adds uh, to this um, discomfort uh, of uh, some American officials with mm-hmm. officials with regards to the WTO. So uh, it, it doesn't make a difference in the sense that it would not change U.S. behavior uh, towards um, their policies, uh, trade war, tariffs against China, tariffs that clearly violate WTO disciplines, etc., but may um, negatively affect uh, U.S. disposition towards the WTO. Yeah. Where does this fit in with the um, the race to be the next director general? Is this, I mean, it's already um, looking like a difficult job. Um, does this make it a bit more complicated? Uh, I think it's a pretty difficult job. Um, I don't think this particularly, particular ruling make it more uh, complicated. It just um, adds to a scenario where the tensions between the two major trading powers have been uh, affecting the WTO in a major, major, major way. I think uh, the the selection of the Director General of the WTO is something very important for the future of the the organization. I think the WTO and WTO members are very fortunate to have very well-qualified names in the race, including very well-qualified women, I I must say. But having said that, I think uh, more than a DG, a director general, I think the WTO is looking for a common purpose. What is that very um, common element that unite WTO members 
towards a, a, a goal, an objective, uh, towards a common purpose. What is that? It used to be in the past, maybe trade liberalization and if even free trade. We don't talk about free trade anymore, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's maybe, a dirty word. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, well, WTO reform could be that one thing that could unite members. But, I mean, if you go beyond this slogan, uh, members have very different views about what they want in terms of WTO reform. They're yeah. pulling the organization in opposite directions, in all kinds of directions. So um, I think the, 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 as I said, you know, in addition to uh, DG, or more importantly than looking for a director general, I think the WTO is looking for a common purpose. Yeah. Do you get a sense from your position there in, in, in Beijing that perhaps what China wants from WTO reform is different to what the US would want from WTO reform? I'm very much convinced of that. Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the US sees WTO reform as an opportunity to constrain China, to constrain China's policies in terms of industrial subsidies, in terms of intellectual property, in terms of state-owned enterprises. And uh, I remember the Chinese ambassador to the WTO saying very, articulating very clearly, said, listen um, to, to the rest of the membership, if anyone believes that uh, by uh, supporting the WTO reform, China would be accepting, uh, you know, to just put a straight jacket on, you'll be very much disappointed. China understands what the other side wants from the reforms. We want different things, but we want to, to discuss, you know, what kind of... Uh, common purpose, we can share purpose we can find for this organization. So I think they have very different views about um, about the future of the WTO. I feel that China is interested in discussing. China is open to discuss, to find, you know, uh, ways forward for the WTO to improve the organization, the function, uh, the, 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 the negotiating function of the organization, etc. Whereas uh, I'm not that sure about what the U.S. wants from from the yeah. WTO and whether that can be consistent with what China wants, so that's a that's a big question. Yeah, and I have found in the interviews I've been doing with the candidates over the past couple of months, I mean, honestly, it's been very difficult to get them to say anything of uh, real substance because of the the fraught nature of, of politics today. Um, nobody wants to say anything that will offend either the US or China because they fear if you do annoy one side, your candidacy may be dead in the water. Do you, you know, you've been involved with the WTO for in the past. You've followed global trade for many years, Tatiana. Is this a different sort of race than we have had in, in years gone by? Yeah, I think it's 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 different. Uh, absolutely, it's different. Uh, I think uh, in the past, um, uh, candidates for the job of director general of the WTO would be reluctant to somehow be perceived as being taken of taking sides. You know, you want to be perceived as a neutral, honest broker, someone who could uh, uh, help facilitate uh, the dialogue between uh, among members. So, I mean, depending on the issue, you would feel the same, um, you would have the same feeling interviewing members uh, in, in, in previous uh, races. But now, um, I think as we, we, we miss uh, that uh, common purpose, shared purpose for the organization, it's even more difficult to, for, for the candidates to say anything really meaningful mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what to expect for the future of the organization. Just getting back to what we're discussing now, US and China have such different views about where the organization should go, where the organization should head to. 
that whatever a candidate says, it can be perceived as, you know, leaning towards one or the other. I think this polarization that we see in politics in so many countries somehow uh, is also seen in the WTO. Members have very different views about what the WTO should or should not be doing. I was going to ask you about how closely you feel this race is being followed in, in Beijing um, from your colleagues and, and people you speak to and how much are people interested, how interested are people in this WTO ruling that happened this week in China's favour? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of interest in China in the WTO. Um, I think China has contributed a lot to the WTO, to the multilateral trading system and China has benefited a lot from the WTO. China joined the WTO later, paid a high uh, ticket price uh, to join the organization, and of course is willing to enjoy the benefits of a a functional trading system. So um, I think it is interested in, 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 in the selection of a director general because, yes, a director general can make a difference for the organization. In the discussion, for example, about reforming the WTO, a good, uh, a skillful, a talented director general can help shape the debates, can help uh, uh, somehow bring the membership together. So I think that is of interest to China. And um, with regards to the to the to the ruling to, uh, that uh, came out uh, this week, I think uh, there is there is um, somehow this sense of vindication. I think that you mentioned in the piece you wrote for the for the this, this South China Morning Post. And that is shared by the, the academic community here who've been uh, who's been following the the the, the case uh, as uh, as policymakers um, of course. Um, having said that, I think uh, uh, people understand that uh, there's a limited there's a how can I put it uh, the value of this this um, this this ruling is somehow limited by what mm-hmm. the U.S. has done to the appellate body. So there's a, a, a certain realism, you know, uh, through which this this ruling has been has been yeah, seen. Certainly, it helps with the moral argument, but it won't make a difference in in the trade war in the bigger scheme of uh, things, right? Yeah, no, totally, totally agree. That's what I've been hearing all week. Um, just to finish up, Tatiana, two two quick fire questions. Who is your favorite candidate to govern the WTO? And who do you think China's favorite candidate is? Ah, oh, really? <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, really, I don't I don't have a favorite candidate. Uh, uh, to be frank with you, I think it's time to have a female um, uh, director general of the WTO. The, the WTO has never had one. And uh, fortunately, luckily, we have a very good, very well qualified um, candidates, female candidates this time. So I think that's a moment for, for a woman to lead the organization. Mm. Uh, in terms of what China wants, I think China wants someone who's perceived as um, as as neutral, as trustworthy, uh, as able. You know, someone who has the skills to uh, somehow operate in this different and this difficult environment and bring and bring the key players to ne- to the negotiating table and trying to make the organization work. I think China is very pragmatic. Uh, in the sense that uh, it understands that the WTO is transforming the way it it does business for the mm-hmm. for the organization to be credible to be relevant in the future, it has to do business differently. And China understands that and supports, for example, this 
I don't want to be technical here, this plurilateral agreements mm-hmm. where you don't have all 164 members, you have a subset of the membership, but those who are willing to move forward. So this is one thing that China is supportive of. But you need a, a, a director general who's not only a politically strong, but also who's technically able uh, to facilitate the conversations in a way that they are productive, uh, fruitful. Great stuff, Tatiana, very diplomatically and very knowledgeably put. So thank you very much for for, <laughs> for, for joining us on this week's podcast. Uh, take care up there in Beijing and we will talk to you soon. Thank you, my pleasure. A bonus segment for this week's podcast. H. David Murray is the president and CEO of M Group Corporation, a company that makes high-end furniture fittings for hotels and is headquartered in LaGrange, Georgia. I caught up with David earlier this week on a Zoom call to hear his story of what it's been like to be an international American manufacturer in the age of Trump. Back when Trump was elected, almost 100% of this company's manufacturing was based in China. Now, after a succession of tariffs and duties on products, he's been forced to gradually move parts of the production process into Southeast Asia and further afield. Here he tells me what happened when the Trump administration launched anti-dumping duties of 341% on quartz countertops from China. So we got involved in that in the, in the, the quartz industry in the United States uh, that was importing from China ended up getting an average of 341% duties. And we started to look elsewhere and ended up, our, our quartz supply chain ended up with a Spanish fabricator mm-hmm. owned by Italians living in Brazil. And our countertops were fabricated from that Spanish supplier in Estonia. We came, we came up with a solution uh, and the only real winner was my frequent flyer program. Literally, my son and I, oldest son, traveled just about all over the world to find resources, and we've we've done so. And then the next blow was uh, uh, millwork uh, cabinets, vanity bases, kitchen cabinets uh, came under assault of Mm -hmm. anti dumping Mm -hmm. because the political climate in the United States is really good for that, right? (laughs) And uh, we now make our in Malaysia. So our pivot, we moved about where we were 100%, almost 100% Chinese in mm-hmm. 19, in 2017. We're now probably 52, 55% Chinese mm-hmm. in balance in Vietnam, Malaysia, and Eastern Europe. David explained that he suspected Chinese counterparts were getting around these anti-dumping duties by transshipment via Malaysia or Vietnam, then reboxing the products, sending them on to the United States. Or in the case of other products, adding a different customs code to the shipment, reliant on the fact that in the customs world, not everyone knows the difference between a headboard and a panel system. A headboard over the bed. Mm. Is, is classified at a certain rate with a 202% duty. But a, a, a panel system has a far lower duty. Mm. So they'll, they'll reclassify it, misclassify it as a panel system, and it's coming through. Mm. So CBP is Customs Board Protection is overworked. Yeah. Uh, 
if, if the paperwork looks somewhat good, then there's a good chance that these guys will, will get it through by cheating. But rather than blame these individual manufacturers from China for circumventing the rules, David laid the blame squarely at the feet of the U.S. government. We want to play by the rules. I'm too old to go to jail and I'm too old to pay a $30 million fine. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not willing to take that risk. But uh, unfortunately, many people are. And if you're sitting with four idle course ranges in China mm-hmm. and you've got a thousand employees and all of a sudden your number one market has evaporated, uh, you know, I, I don't fault them for coming up with creative solutions, but I, I do fault our process here in the United States of not knowing how to catch what, a, a, you know, to the people in the business is obvious and flagrant cheating. Yeah. And if you're going to have a rule, we need to either enforce it or stay away from the sound bites. Yeah. And the sound bites is we're making these Chinese guys pay. And they're laughing all the way to the bank. David doesn't want to take the remaining 50-odd percent of his production out of China, but he may be left with little choice. He worries that in the current political climate, with both Donald Trump and Joe Biden wanting to look tough on China, his company may be forced to do so. Listen in here as David explains why he doesn't want to move that manufacturing out of China. We have long, long-term relationships with our resources. They started... As, as young, uh, struggling businesses, just like we did. Yeah. And we've, we've grown together and we've made a lot of money together and we have, we've formed a lot of trust together. And we will do everything we can mm-hmm. to continue to support these resources mm-hmm. unless it just becomes impossible from a, from a trade standpoint to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. China is still the easiest place in the world for us to do business. It's it's a huge big box retail store. Yeah. You can get anything, uh, in, in multiple choices of anything to produce in your supply chain, your parts, your raw materials are all easily obtainable. And you, you try to do that same model in Vietnam or in Malaysia or in Indonesia, which are essentially assembling areas, not yeah. manufacturing areas. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the expertise is not there. The experience is not there. I go in my factories in China where we make furniture and the average worker is 40, 42 years old. And I go in that same factory in Vietnam and the worker is 19 or 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ability to produce and be productive mm-hmm. and get the same level of productivity if you think that's going to happen overnight. Yeah. Now give us give us 10 12 years. We'll figure it out. But right now there's there's you're dealing with experienced workers, uh, a skill set that's uh, as good as anywhere on earth and you're mm-hmm. dealing with a supply chain that yeah. makes uh, production and fabrication as easy and as efficient as possible. Both Biden and Trump have really vowed to bring back manufacturing to the United States. And whereas that may be possible in some fields of industry, medical supply chain, drug supply chain, stuff like that, it's not really viable in other industries. And this is something that 
my conversation with David really reiterated in my mind. I asked him what he thought about this push to move American companies out of China. What does he think about this voguish term of decoupling? Uh, it, it makes you feel like people don't really understand the nature of a supply chain and that, that you cannot turn a supply chain making millions of dollars of anything overnight. It is a six-month process. Uh, in, in the six months, if you're even up and running, uh, you're ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. Supply supply chains are, are global now, and you just can't turn them on a dime. Yeah. So if, if President Trump or, or President Xi, either one, come out and say, you know, there's going to be a 200% duty on everything, mm-hmm. you know, for six months, be prepared to see higher prices, lack of supply, or people just cheating as, as, as much as they can, and the governments on each side looking the other way because they don't want to, uh, you know, ad- admit that this this policy is is in the short run, you know, very very extreme. And whereas the thought of moving back to America is a very nice one, it really doesn't work for his industry. Um, I asked him to explain the challenges of, of reshoring to the United States, specifically to North Carolina, which was previously the home of the American furniture industry. And here's what he had to say. Trump camps not on this, uh, you know, if, let me give you an example. If uh, a lot of furniture for the hotel business used to be made in the state of North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that was 20 years ago. And as the state of North Carolina offered me $5 million of grants to open up a, a factory in North Carolina today, first of all, the worker that I'd find would be 68, 70 years old because <laughs> they were the skill set. You know, the supply chain, who makes the hinges, who makes the boxes for the furniture, who does the stain, who does the the finishes, where do I buy the equipment? Yeah. You know, I, I, it would take me three to five years if I were the best in the business mm. to be competitive, and then my cost would be twice as high as, as, as a Vietnamese or Chinese supplier. Yes, yes. So, I yes. mean, it, there, there's some point where you just got to realize that in this global advancement of, of people, labor jobs have moved throughout time. When I was a kid, my cheap toys were made in Japan. And then it was Taiwan. Then it was China. Then it was Korea. And in the next five years, it'll be Vietnam or, or Laos or Cambodia or mm-hmm. somewhere else. And, you know, this is an ongoing cycle. And it, it's been this way for, for forever. So right now, it's, it's China's golden age of industrialization. But the United States had this age in 19, you know, 10 through 1925. And, and who knows whose turn it'll be next. That was H. David Murray, the president of M Group Corporation. Thanks to David for explaining to us the challenges he's currently facing. Thanks to Tatiana Prazeras for joining us to explain the WTO. 
And thanks, as always, to John Carter Joshin for explaining what's going on in China this week. This has been the US-China Trade War Update. I've been Finbar Birmingham, and thank you for listening. Please take a moment to like, share, and subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at SCMP Economy, and I am on Twitter at F Birmingham. That's F Birmingham with a B-E-R, not like the city. We'll be back same place next week. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.